I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 56, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, volume 1, pages 244 to 245 and 295 to 307. In 1886, while visiting the provincial town of Tiflis, Tchaikovsky made the acquaintance of a handsome artillery officer, Ivan Vernovsky, whom he dubbed Offit Zurich, or Little Officer. According to Holden, the young man had expressed a love for the composer's music, which was a, different, which was a sufficient enough recommendation for him to be invited to the home of his younger brother, Anatoly, where the composer was visiting. In this fleeting infatuation, the composer was forced to vie for the affections of the soldier with his flirtatious sister-in-law, Praskovia Panya. Tarkovsky apparently lost the war or became so frustrated with Panya that he left the house. Shortly after Tarkovsky's departure, the young man put a bullet through his head. As usual, Tarkovsky was devastated by the news of Vernovsky's suicide, said Holden. Nevertheless, he soon found a pleasant replacement in the person of a young cellist, Anatoly Van Dukov, who would remain close to his master until his death. In 1888, the prematurely aging Tchaikovsky met a talented young Russian pianist, Vasily Sapelnikov. The composer confessed to his modest that he had not loved anyone so much since Kotek. Although their relationship was reported to be simply platonic, nevertheless, Sapelnikov, like Bandukov, would on occasion become an evening fellow traveler with the composer in search of young men at local homosexual haunts. Since Tchaikovsky was never involved in any public scandal or trial like Oscar Wilde, and because he did not publicly acknowledge his pederastic taste like Andre Gide, almost all of the information about his private life and sexual exploits has come down to us from entries found in his private diaries and from his voluminous correspondence. Anthony Holden had revealed that the composer-conductor recorded a good, great deal of information about his homosexual liaisons in letters to Modeste and other close friends, beginning in the late 1870s and continuing through the early 1890s. He also kept a series of diaries and journals in which he confided his sexual longings and details of his homoerotic affairs. By necessity, all these entries and incriminating letters were heavily coded. Two years before his death in 1893, Tchaikovsky destroyed most of his telltale journals and correspondence. Only the summer diaries of 1884 that recorded the 44-year-old composer's obsession with his 13-year-old nephew, Bob, survived. Modest later published a number of letters and other writing written remembrances of his famous brother, but these were heavily sanitized to remove any references or clues to Tchaikovsky's unnatural sexual desires. Nevertheless, it has been possible for historians and biographers to piece together a fairly accurate picture of Tchaikovsky's double life as a predatory, self-destructive homosexual dominated by pederastic passions. Like Wilde and Gide and all the other homosexuals covered in this historical overview, he possessed an uncanny ability to compartmentalize his life and to rationalize away all obstacles that stood in the way of his inordinate sexual desires. 
no matter what the price to himself or the many young men he seduced, some of whom took their own life. Tchaikovsky's mysterious death on November 6, 1893, in St. Petersburg, has been the subject of much controversy in recent years. While the official death certificate listed cholera as the cause of the composer's death, there is an abundance of new historical data that strongly supports the theory that Tchaikovsky took his own life. In his biography of the famed composer, Holden presents what appears to be the most plausible explanation for Tchaikovsky's suicide. He writes that in 1893, the year of his death, Tchaikovsky began a homosexual liaison with Alexander Vladimirovich Stenbrock Fermer, the 18-year-old nephew of Count Alexei Alexandrovich Stenbrock Stenbach Firmer, a close friend of the Tsar Alexander III. The outraged count used the prominent lawyer Nikolai Jacobi, a graduate from the composer's alma mater, the School of Jurisprudence, to present his letter of complaint directly to the Tsar. In order to avoid a public scandal, Jacobi took it upon himself to immediately convene a secret court or of honor at his home composed of Tchaikovsky's schoolmates and contemporaries who were in St. Petersburg at the time. The composer was summoned before the makeshift court and ordered to defend himself against the charges put forth in the letter of the count or take the honorable way out and kill himself. Within a day or two, news has spread throughout the city that Tchaikovsky is mortally ill. On November 6, 1893, Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky died. His funeral was the largest St. Petersburg had ever seen. Conclusion. The critical assessments of Tchaikovsky and other prominent homosexuals and pederasts of the 19th century found in this chapter are not intended to disparage their worldly accomplishments, nor are they meant to suggest that these men were totally lacking in certain admirable qualities. And most certainly, they are not to be interpreted as an indication of the ultimate eternal fate of their immortal souls. For as a 6th century philosopher once said, the soul of a man is a far country which cannot be approached or explored. God is the final judge, not man. But this does not mean that we cannot judge a person's outward acts or weigh the historical evidence for or against his character. The biographical sketches that have been presented in this section are intended to draw the reader's attention to the innate destructive nature of homosexual passions on men of every age whose misfortune it was to be brought to be caught up in the vice on those young men who were drawn into the web of perversion and on those family members who were left to pick up the pieces of tragic affairs gone wrong it is difficult to imagine any vice that leaves as many dead bodies and dead souls in its wake as does homosexuality. Chapter 5. The Homintern and Cam the Cambridge Spies Introduction Claire Sterling, author of the superb ex expose Octopus, The Long Reach of the Sicilian Mafia, has observed that a network is impossible to resist were imperfectly understood. Part of this understanding of networks, be it the mafia, 
the Cambridge spy ring, or the 21st century home turn in the Roman Catholic Church includes a, an acknowledgement that such subversive organizations do not grow spontaneously, but must be directed and managed. To discuss such things as infiltration, subversion, spies, treason, and betrayal in the context of any subversive organization is, in the words of Father Enrique Ureda, neither unseemly nor paranoid. This historical overview of the Cambridge spies demonstrates how quickly crown, state, or church can be brought down when subversion and treason from within combines with attack from without. It not only provides an example of the development organization and ramifications of a subversive network, but also many concrete insights into the development and inner workings of the Homosexual International from the 1930s on. Most importantly, it provides a detailed examination of a large-scale establishment crisis and cover-up in which homosexuality played a pivotal role in a nation's history, the anatomy of treason. A nation can survive its fools and even the ambitious, but it cannot survive treason from within. An enemy at the gate is less formidable, for he is known and he carries his banner openly, but the traitor moves among those within the gate freely, for his sly whispers rustling through all the alleys, heard in the very hall of government itself. For the traitor appears not a traitor, he speaks in accents familiar to his victims, and he wears their face and their garments, and he appeals to the baseless to the baseness that lies deep in the hearts of all men. He rots the soul of a nation. He works secretly and unknown in the night to undermine the pillars of a city. He infects the holy he infects the body politic so that it can no longer resist. A murderer is less to be feared. Cicero forty two BC In the realm of the profane, a traitor is defined as one who betrays his country to which he owes his allegiance by overt actions. In the realm of the sacred, the traitor is one who, by deliberate acts, betrays his, his faith. The motivation for treason, both secular and sacred, is generally mixed and difficult to decipher. It may include a desire for personal gain or monetary reward, or a, be a consequence of an, of an illicit entanglement or former criminal action, or simply the desire to deceive and betray those for whom a violent and long-standing grudge or resentment is born. Although blackmail is popularly believed to be an effective means of recruiting potential traitors by enemy operatives in the secularist field, this is usually not the case. As Alexander Orlov, a former head of Soviet intelligence, has observed, it is a poor and dangerous strategy to make an enemy of a man and thereafter rely on him in such a delicate and hazardous matter as an intelligence operation. The clamor of, claim of blackmail, on the other hand, is often used as an after-the-fact ploy. Convicted traitors often attempt to extenuate their guilt in the eyes of the jury and win as much leniency as they can from the court by testifying that they have been forced into espionage by the threat of blackmail, said Orlov. (laughs) 
Since human motivation is so critical to the espionage business, the successful recruiter and network builder tends to eschew blackmail in favor of more positive means of inspiring and directing the members of a spy network. These include appeals to idealism, the lure of money, or to personal and exploitable character traits, including excessive egotism, the desire for revenge or retribution, the ability to correctly assess character and motivation and to mold members of a spy team into an effective, cohesive espionage team in the mark of intelligence competence. Victor Ostrovsky, a former Mossad Israeli intelligence service agent, compared the recruitment process to that of rolling a rock down a hill. We used the word beladarder to mean, meaning to stand on top of a hill and push a boulder down. That's how you recruit, he explained. You take somebody and get him gradually to do something illegal or immoral. You push him down the hill, but if he's on a pedestal, he's not going to help you. You can't use him. The whole purpose is to use people, and, but in order to use them, you have to mold them. You have, if you have a guy who doesn't drink, doesn't want sex, doesn't need money, has no political problems, and is happy with life, you can't recruit him, Ostrovsky said, the traitor as a grievance collector. Bradford Westerfield, an expert on espionage, has claimed that in terms of personality traits, the man who would be traitor can be defined by three primary characteristics his immaturity, sociopathy, and narcissism. His self-absorption is like a dark star or a black hole. Everything goes in, but no light, no love, no warmth, no understanding ever comes out, Westerfield said. In his need to preserve his emotional virginity and to deflect his own guilt, blame, and responsibility, Westerfield noted, the traitor attributes his adverse conditions to persons or circumstances outside of himself. Whatever the actual source of his difficulties, the traitor does not see them arising from his own actions. In this way, he is able to preserve his grandiose view of himself, view of his immediate self, Westfield said. The habitual mindset of a traitor has been described as one of controlled schizophrenia, not unlike the pederast priest who says mass and immediately retires to the sacristy to sodomize an altar boy, the successful trader needs to strictly compartmentalize his life in order to retain a sense of sanity and control and to escape detection. He must perfect the art of duplicity and concealment. He must learn to play out different roles, to constantly remake his persona. He, must, he also must have great enough strength he also must have great strength of will in order to contend with the inevitable tensions that living a double or triple life brings. Failure to acquire these skills is a virtual guarantee of a mental or emotional breakdown. For the traitor, Westfield said, hatred is a powerful motivator. The traitor is a collector of injustices and resentments, real and imagined. When it is combined with an ideology like communism that feeds on hate, the combination can be lethal. Quoting a British historian, Westfield said, and a man is never so dangerous as when he can identify a private grievance with a matter of principle. This singular factor, hate, explains in part why two minority groups, notably Jews and homosexuals, 
played such a significant role in a number of major United States and English spy cases during the post-1917 Bolshevik Revolution era. Both Lenin and later Stalin were able to exploit the vulnerabilities of Jews and homosexuals in advancing their dictatorships. The Bolshevik Jews alienated from both their own religious heritage and from Tsarist Orthodox society, played a prominent role in the Bolshevik Revolution. The Communist Party, the Red Army High Command, and the Soviet Cheka, the Bolsheviks' secret police and primary arm of terror. According to Zvi Y. Gittelman, author of Jewish Nationality and Soviet Politics, the Jewish section of the CPSU 1917-1920, since most Jews were not obviously devoted to the Tsar, they could be expected not to support the whites. Also, there was the matter of power. From the Jewish point of view, it was no doubt the lure of immediate physical power which attracted many Jewish youths, desirous of avenging crimes perpetrated against their people by anti-Soviet forces of all sorts, wrote, wrote Gittleman. Whatever the reasons, Jews were heavily represented in the secret police. He said, if you fell into their hands, you would probably be shot, he continued. Since the Cheka was the most hated and feared organ of the Bolshevik government, anti-Jewish feelings increased in direct proportion to the Cheka terror, said Gilliman. He also reported that Lenin appreciated Jewish participation in Soviet administration, as well as the rule of Jews in revolutionary activities, not only in Russia, but also in other lands. In the United States, during the decades immediately following the 1917 revolution, investigative writers like investigative writers Ronald Radosh and Joyce Milton, authors of the Rosenberg File, A Search for the Truth, wrote that many Jewish intellectuals and scientists were drawn into the spy game by their admiration for the Soviet social experiment that had made anti-Semitism a crime against the state. Radosh and Milton cited convicted Soviet spies Julius and Ethel Rosenberg as thoroughgoing ideologues, and Ethel Rosenberg in particular as a practical hater filled with vengeance. Like the Bolshevik Jews, leaders of the emerging Hamantern in Europe and in the United States were filled with the same revolutionary zeal for a utopian new order that was so that would no longer discriminate against homosexuals. Both groups used the clenched fist as a symbol of liberation, except that whereas the communist raised his fist in the air, the members of the Humintern drove it into the rectum of a, as a symbol of the rebellion. The Comintern and the Humintern also shared a common hatred for God, for Christianity, indeed, all legitimate power. Like their Jewish counterparts, the communist homosexuals were willing to take a risk because they believed that they had nothing to lose. Treason is a deviant act, so is sodomy. Historically speaking, there has always been a traditional association between sexual deviancy and heresy and treason. And while it is true that not all homosexuals are traitors or radical socialists, nevertheless, the traitor and the homosexual do share common traits. The personality profile of a homosexual closely fits Westerfield's personality profile of a traitor. He is immature, neurotic, and narcissistic. The active homosexual is an artful seducer, a natural recruiter, and a proselytizer for the cause. 
He is a predator skilled in evaluating the vulnerability of his prey. He is conditioned to acts of duplicity and split loyalties. He lives a compartmentalized life with contacts to the criminal underworld via illicit drugs, pornography, prostitution, and possible blackmail and violence. The homosexual is a gatherer of injustices and Marxism offers from the attraction of a secret shrine of individual rebellion. It is this desire to strike back against a society that has rejected him rather than the threat of blackmail that lures the homosexual into the enemy's espionage net. The homosexual believes himself to be an outsider, that is, who, like the spy, wants to come in from the cold but feels he cannot. The Dutch psychologist Gerald J. M. van den Aardweg, Ph.D., summarized the homosexual's propensity for subversive subversion thusly. Subversiveness is not rare in homosexuals, as is the hostility coming from the complex of not belonging. For that reason, about homosexuals may be unreliable elements in any group or organization. They desire an unreal utopian world, said Vanden Ardwerk, one that is superior, snobbish, more chic, full of thrill and adventure in comparison to the ordinary world, he reported. The Espionage Business Gathering intelligence on foreign governments, including the secret, including their secret offensive and defensive powers and plans, and keeping the actual potential enemy state from discovering its national secrets has been the common goal of all national secret services since time immemorial. Traditionally, European powers relied on selected princes of the Roman Catholic Church to organize their secret services, since no single nation was able to compete with the most widespread and efficient espionage system in the world. For example, in 17th century France, acting under a request to the Holy See by King Louis Louis XIII, Cardinal Richelieu, aided by a Capuchin priest, Francois Leclerc de Tremblay, created a vast internal and external intelligence service that rivaled that of France's arch-rival England and competed and catapulted France into a first-class world power. Although the objectives of modern-day national secret services has changed little from the days of, of Richelieu, the means by which these objectives are secured and information processed has changed dramatically and very widely from country to country. During the first half of the 20th century, the United States and the West in general based their doctrine of intelligence primarily on research and information gathered from open sources, whereas the Soviets and Eastern Bloc depended more on a cloak-and-dagger approach in which intelligence is gathered from secret sources using a vast network of spies, informers, and undercover agents to ferret out the highly classified documents and raw data and to lure potential traders into their service. By the early 1920s, the intelligence services of key Western European powers, including England and France, were alerted to the fact that the Bolsheviks, in addition to building up the Cheka, their internal secret police, used to combat counter-revolutionary activities and sabotage at home, were also planning a new and vast international espionage network. 
In early 1918, Communist Chief Vladimir Lenin put the Cheka into the hands of Felix Edmundovich Dzerzhinsky, considered to be the father of modern Soviet espionage. Although the name of Soviet intelligence services has changed over the years from the Cheka to the GPU, State Political Administration 1922-1923 to the OGPU, United States Political Directorate 1923-1934 to the NKVD, People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs 1934-1946 to the MD, Ministry of Internal Affairs 1946-1954 and finally to the KGB, Committee for State Security. That was supplemented by the GRU, Chief Intelligence Directorate of the General Staff, in 1954, Soviet espionage agents are still known to Soviet citizens as Czechists. Following the death of Dzerzhinsky in 1926, Lenin's heir to terror, Joseph Stalin, made the newly expanded Soviet secret police the instrument of his absolute power over the Russian people. In terms of foreign espionage, during the early 1920s, Soviet intelligence operations designed to foment world revolution were routinely centered in Soviet embassies. Gradually, however, Stalin began to replace this highly vulnerable system with a more sophisticated network of Soviet agents headed by resident directors who had no connections to the Soviet Union's formal diplomatic staff abroad and who operated under orders directly from Moscow. Labor unions, universities, industrial centers, and liberal political and cultural institutions in the United States and in Europe were the primary targets of communist infiltration and control. For example, in England, the Trotskyists and communists posed as socialists and heavily infiltrated the Labor Party. Even the Tories were not immune from infiltration. The NKVD was also able to use the Comintern intelligence apparatus in Britain to recruit civil servants from the governmental bureaucracy at Whitehall, including members of the permanent secretaries, club of heads of the Department of State. During the late 1920s and early 1930s, as Stalin was methodically planning his great terror at home in the form of a massive political, military, economic, and agricultural purges that cost an estimated 20 million Russian lives. He also embarked upon a vastly expanded espionage program designed to secure diplomatic, military, industrial, and scientific intelligence from the West. Stalin ordered that Soviet-controlled long-term sleepers and moles be placed in secret service agencies, high government posts, and key university and scientific centers throughout the West. His strategy proved deadly successful, especially among against British intelligence services and the United States Office of Strategic Services, OSS, and later the Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, and the National Security Agency, NSA. As espionage writers Philip Knightley, Bruce Page, and David Leitch have pointed out, a penetrated secret service is not just a bad one, it is an appalling liability. For at least 10 years, a charitable estimate, the British Secret Service in areas of diplomacy, economics, and strategic defense 
where the blinding with the blind leading the blind, operations were forfeited, officers compromised, or agents shot, imprisoned, or forced to become channels of misleading information, i.e. disinformation, they charged. The fact that by 1932, Stalin had already set a course of covert warfare against the West well in advance of the onset of World War II supports the theory put forth by historians such as Professor Ernst Topisch of the University of Graz in Austria that the Soviet dictator used the war as a part of the Soviet long-term strategy for the subjugation and destruction on the non-communist world, that is to say, the Second World War was essentially Stalin's war, not Hitler's. A Soviet hook for everyone. Stalin honed Soviet espionage into an exacting science with a hook tailor-made for an exact fit of every potential target of recruitment and recruitment. Target, target of recruitment. In terms of diplomatic intelligence, the principal sources of state secrets were foreign diplomats, ambassadors, staff members of foreign ministries, including code clerks and secretaries, members of parliaments and ambitious politicians who in their quest for power sought financial aid and support from the liberal establishment. Foreign office departmental heads were of particular value because they were able to supply the Soviets with confidential documents of the secret policies and strategies of multiple foreign governments. The, great, the greatest Soviet prize, however, was the hooking of a high-level diplomat or ambassador who, in addition to being privy to important foreign policy decisions, could be used by the Soviets as a Judas goat to attract other recruits or as an agent of influence as well as a vehicle for disinformation. Soviet intelligence officers, officers kept detailed life histories of potential recruits in the diplomatic field that included background information on their character traits and temperament, family life, schooling, religion, finances, associations, ideology, politics, and sexual habits and vices. Since diplomatic posts, including those of the United States and Europe, as well as the Vatican, have traditionally attracted an inordinate number of male perverts, the Soviets found that in the case of homosexual diplomats, blackmail was worth the extra risk and expense. Interestingly, even when a Soviet agent failed to hook homosexual diplomats with a threat of blackmail or exposure, his illegal overtures were rarely reported to the authorities by the compromised diplomat or ambassador since the latter was unwilling to expose his own illicit sexual habits. Significantly in sharp contrast to the Soviets, who were quick to appreciate and exploit the traditional blackmail potential of homosexuality, both British, British intelligence services were not active homosexually, as we shall see, was not an automatic disqualification for either intelligence work or high civil service positions in England between 1939 and 1945. Even in 1948, when the exclusion policy of positive vetting of known homosexuals was put into effect by England's national security agencies, it was never fully enforced. No middle-class intelligence employee was likely to jeopardize his job by questioning the moral qualifications of an upper-class civil service 
and intelligence applicants who by reason of birth or wealth were automatically granted the choicest of governmental appointments as well as rapid upward career mobility. Even if a whistleblower was willing to risk his job by blackmailing an upper-class bugger as a security risk, his recommendation could be overridden by his superior or by Whitehall. This was one reason why, once the Soviets had established their rich boys spy network, spy mole network at Oxbridge, the numerous Marxist cells were able to wreak so much havoc on Britain's and America's intelligence services. When it came to gathering intelligence of a scientific nature, the Soviets found that flattery and the promise of greater power and influence was a more powerful hook than sex. As English writer Rebecca West has pointed out in her many excellent works on the subject of treason, prominent foreign scientists were lavishly wined and dined and treated with a feigned deference by Stalin. In connection with the cases of convicted atomic scientists and Soviet agents like Soviet agents Alan Nunn May and Klaus Fuchs, West noted that little can be said in defense of this policy of trying to trying the criminal in a matter in a manner which conceded the nature of the crime from the public which had suffered from it. It helped the communists, enabling them to present their the scientists communist spies as starry-eyed autors who imparted the who imparted secrets to other powers just because they were scientists and who wanted their fellow and wanted their fellow scientists to have the benefit of their own discoveries and were so unworldly that they did not know that they were doing any harm and hardly knew what ideologies were about this was the picture the world got and it was as untrue May was a well-known Marxist and a radical member of the Cambridge branch of the Union of Scientific Workers and Klaus Fuchs, who betrayed atomic scientists directly to the Soviets, was a longtime Marxist ideologue who was deep into the communist network, said West. These men had an exaggerated sense of their own importance and power, they, she said, because their knowledge was tied to the weapons of mass destruction and therefore people could be blackmailed into submission. Their uniform defense that science is reason, therefore it cannot know treason, and that scientists can do no harm because they are scientists and science is right, she concluded, was patently false and subversive to truth and to the nation. Sexpionage, the Soviet honey and drone trap. The linking of sex with spying goes back to the biblical times but Stalin honed sexual entrapment into an art form. The Soviet sex hook proved particularly valuable in connection with securing military, national defense, and political intelligence, and as a weapon to bring down political opponents of the Soviet Union. In his 1976 expose, Sexpionage, the Exploitation of Sex by Soviet Intelligence, David Lewis described the complex costly and utterly dehumanizing training at so of Soviet swallows, female agents and ravens, male agents, who were generally recruited 
by the KGB from respectable middle-class families and had professional backgrounds. In addition to basic ideological, political, and technical training, the sex agents were subject to a thorough process of sexual desensitization prior to their formal instruction in all forms of sex acts, including homosexuality and sadomasochism. Lewis reported that the Soviets kept a large stable of homosexuals as full-time agents whose buried targets included foreign diplomats and tourists. These men were usually young male prostitutes who were given a choice of working for the KGB or being in prison. According to a graduate, Lewis interviewed from the Verkotnyi Sex Center near Kazan, who used the name Dmitri. These homosexual prostitutes were exceedingly handsome, and some were very young. Some, they were kept separate from the other KGB recruits, he said. They seemed to suffer a great deal from their dehumanizing training methods, and two of them committed suicide during my stay there, Dmitri told Lewis. In 2001, Jamie Glazov, Front Page Magazine's managing editor, revealed one of the Soviet's most innovative homosexual sting operations. The Soviet target was John Watkins, a Canadian ambassador to the Soviet Union from 1954 to 1956. Glazov reported that during his assignment in Moscow, Watkins, a homosexual with known Marxist sympathies, routinely sought out anonymous sex partners. One of his Russian acquaintances named Alyosha, an employee of the Soviet foreign ministry with whom Watkins formed a close friendship, was none other than the famed KGB spy recruiter Oleg Gribanov, whose legendary success at homosexual entrapments had secured virtually all of NATO's classified documents for the Soviet Union. According to Glazov, while posing as Watkins' friend, Gribanov, Gribanov set up the hapless ambassador with a KGB plant in a Moscow hotel. The two men were captured on film in flagrante delicto. Gribanov promised to run interference for Watkins if the ambassador could bring himself to warm up to the Soviet ambassador to Canada, Dmitry Tuvakin, who, when he returned to Ottawa that spring. When Watkins completed his posting and returned to Canada, he made no effort to inform the authorities that he was being blackmailed. He was offered the job of Assistant Undersecretary of State for External Affairs, and there he remained until his retirement, said Glazov. In the meantime, in the United States, between 1961 and 1964, no less than three high-ranking Soviet defectors informed the CIA that a homosexual Canadian ambassador in Moscow was being blackmailed by the Soviets. In August 1964, after an investigation of suspected candidates, Canadian officials entered the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to hoof over to the Watkins residence and pick him up for questioning. During the RCMP interrogation, Watkins was reported to have suffered a fatal heart attack, which brought a quick and tidy end to the distasteful affair. It remains unclear whether Watkins did or did not act as an agent of influence for the Soviets before his untimely death. For the record, as reported by Glazov, the new Canadian ambassador to Moscow, David Johnson, who replaced Watkins, was also reported to be homosexual. It was the Soviets' experience, however, 
that many of their usual, that many of their most successful homosexual traders recruited from the West needed to be, needed to, needed no elaborate sexpionage scheme to induce them to treachery. British and American intelligence services. As we have already observed from England's attempts at penetration of Catholic seminaries in France during the Elizabethan period, the English were not slouches when it came to spying and intelligence gathering. By the late 1700s, the beginning of a formal structure for Britain's secret service was set into motion with the creation of a home office and foreign office within the Department of State. In the decades that followed, Britain's vast complex of foreign embassies provided the cover for an expanded secret service abroad and a domestic service that specialized in code-breaking and infiltration of enemy intelligence services, especially those of Russia and Bismarck's pressure. Britain's modern secret intelligence service, SIS, known as M16, was founded in 1909. It was attached to the Foreign Office and directed British espionage work abroad. During the First World War, it concentrated on the infiltration of Germany's espionage units. After the war, the SIS was instrumental in assisting the United States in developing its own intelligence network. The British and the United States also entered into a secret agreement for sharing counterintelligence information, which later gave Stalin uh, another major avenue of intelligence gathering, especially in relationship to the development of the atom bomb. One of the SIS's most valuable anti-Soviet operations was the 1927 raid on the London offices of the Alt-Russia Cooperative Society, LTD, Arcos, the Russian trade delegation, from which the British secured thousands of secret documents on communist activities and agents in England. The raid was staged by M15, a British security service attached to the Home Office, and dealt primarily with homeland security, including the capture of foreign spies, terrorists, and insurgents on English soil. Its nuts and bolts activities, including the maintenance of a central registry for tracking suspected enemy agents and a specialized intelligence blacklist, other specialized subsidiary intelligence units existed both within and without the framework of M15 and M16, including the famous government code and cipher school that broke the German code ultra during the Second World War. In 1941, British, the British created an ultra-secret security division that operated in the Western Hemisphere British Security Coordination, BSC, as a legal cover for all of its other intelligence units, including M15 and M16. Special Operations Executive, or SOE, and the Political Warfare Executive. The structure of the United States Domestic and Foreign Intelligence Services closely mirrored that of the British system. Up until the end of the First World War, the responsibilities for gathering and interpreting enemy diplomatic, military, and political secrets were divided between the State Department with its systems of foreign attaches and embassies and the military intelligence services of the armed forces that included the Office of Naval Intelligence, ONI, 
and G2, the War Department's military intelligence division. During World War I, both the Army and the Navy had established separate offices to decipher and read foreign and enemy communications. In 1920, the American military intelligence secret cryptologic section, known as the Black Chamber, broke the Japanese diplomatic cipher, a major espionage achievement. However, the Secretary, however, Secretary of State Henry L. Stimson shut the cold crackers down in 1929 with the admission that gentlemen do not read each other's mail. On July 11, 1941, in an effort to reduce the growing friction and competition between the various United States intelligence sectors, President Franklin D. Roosevelt appointed William Wild Bill Donovan as the coordinator to a new centralized civilian wartime agency, the Office of Information, modeled after the British SIS and based at the White House. Donovan was a Columbia Law was a Columbia Law School graduate, a World War I hero, and a member of the liberal Eastern establishment from which he drew much of the OSS leadership. The Office of the Coordinator of Information, COI, was charged with intelligence gathering and assimilation of matters touching upon national security. COI opened its London office in November 1941. In June 1942, Donovan's CY underwent a major reorganization. Its staff and budget was divided into four, into two sectors. An Office of Strategic Services, OSS, directed by Donovan, but placed under the Office of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, JCS, and its own, with its own overseas counterintelligence secret service, XZ, and the Foreign Information Service, FIS, that was placed under Roosevelt's direct supervision at the newly created Office of War Information. The overall purpose of the OSS was to support military operations in the field by providing research, propaganda, and commando support. Donovan filled the OSS Research and Analysis Branch, R&A, with well-known elite members of the Eastern Establishment, while the Special Operations Branch, SO, that ran paramilitary and psychological warfare operations in Europe and Asia represented a more multi-talented multinational force that assisted Allied and partisan forces during World War II. The OSS also established a secret intelligence branch, SI, under Princeton-educated SI Station Chief Alan W. Dulles, who, uh, Dulles, who operated out of the American embassy in Bern, Switzerland. Professional military intelligence officers convinced Roosevelt that General Donovan and his OSS should be denied access to top-secret Allied deciphered communications from Japan using the decoder system nicknamed MAGIC, as well as decoded messages from Germany using ULTRA. However, the OSS and counterintelligence branch X2, which shared its intelligence with British SIS did have access to German ultra-intelligence. This proved to be a fatal error. By the end of World War II, the OSS, dubbed also social by its critics, had been infiltrated by at least 15 Soviet spies, as well as other criminal elements from the Sicilian Mafia, which meant that not only was the OSS an expensive 
internally a corrupted and ineffectual secret service. But it also, it also became a dangerous source of Soviet disinformation and of post-war infiltration by Soviet agents. In short, the OSS was the most deeply penetrated of the United States intelligence services. None had so many Soviet moles as the OSS. As the OSS. On, November, on October 1, 1945, under the Truman administration, the OSS was officially dissolved. Its RNA sector was transferred to the State Department and all of the OSS branches, including Secret Intelligence and X2, were absorbed by the War Department. Two years later, Truman, with the approval of Congress, authorized the creation of the Central Intelligence Group, CIG, later renamed the Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, under the National Security Act of 1947. Like the OSS, the key posts of the CIA were filled with academics and politicians with all the proper Asian establishment credentials, a veritable old boys club, not unlike that which spawned the Cambridge spies. Domestic counterintelligence, however, remained the task of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI, headed by J. Edgar Hoover, the ONI, and G2, the genesis of the Cambridge spy ring. It has been reported by various Soviet defectors to the United States and England that when Ivan Maisky, the Soviet ambassador to Great Britain, initially proposed the novel concept of recruiting young English radical upper-class high flyers as Soviet intelligence agents before they entered the corridors of power, both Stalin and Lavrenti Beria, head of the NKBD, were skeptical that such a plan could work. When they learned that many of these potential recruits were confirmed pederasts and homosexuals, they were even more incredulous. However, since the GRU was already well established in London and legal and illegal residents were in place to serve as controllers, Stalin gave the go-ahead to Soviet foreign ministry officials to set the plan in motion. The year was 1932. Soviet intelligence under Comintern cover began the process of identifying, cultivating, evaluating, and ultimately recruiting the liberal-minded anti-fascist candidates from, from Oxbridge. Much to the Soviets' amazement, the scheme worked like magic. It appeared that Cambridge, and to a lesser extent Oxford, Britain's two senior universities, were already well-primed to become the epicenters of the greatest Soviet espionage success of the 20th century. For more than a century, the religious beliefs and faculty and students at England's premier educational institutions had been undermined by Oxbridge's literary and intellectual elite. Christian morals had succumbed to the aggressive assault of neo-pagan Hellenism. Few remained, the few remaining loyal servants of the king's religion found they could no longer even defend what little was left of the emasculated religious beliefs that had, they had settled for against the rising tide of modernism in his own clerical and secular ranks. The British satirist George Orwell, Eric Blair, once observed, culturally, the English intelligentsia are Europeanized. They take their cookery from Paris and their opinions from Moscow. In the general patriotism of the country, they form a sort of island dissident thought. England is perhaps the only great country whose intellectuals are ashamed of their nationality. 
in Marxist circles, it is always felt that there is something slightly disgraceful in being an Englishman and that it is a duty to snigger at every English institution, from horse racing to suet puddings. It is a strange fact, but it is unquestionably true that almost any English intellectual would feel more ashamed of standing to attention during God Save the King than of standing than of stealing from a poor box. The 1930s recruitment of liberal-minded intellectuals and scientists at Oxford as sleeper agents represented the final phase of subversion by the Soviets that had begun decades earlier with attacks on England's class system and the penetration of Britain's trade unions and labor movement. Communists sold the sizzle to Oxford's young idealists. That is the idea of making the world safe from the menace to fascism. However, Marxism found it difficult to compete with the popular Fabian socialists, the more genteel of the collectivist movements. On campus, avowed communists, including economics, dons like Maurice Dobb, who helped found the Cambridge communist cell, Piero Schraffa, an associate of the Italian communist leader, Antonio Gramsci, and Roy Pascal, professor of German at Cambridge, brought a generation of Oxford radicals, undergraduates, into the Soviet's orbit of influence. The Marxists were also aided and abetted by a vast network of quasi-Masonic secret societies that pervaded upper-class Britain as a whole, and Oxford in particular. The most famous and exclusive of these secret campus societies was Cambridge's Conversation Society, known simply as the Society and its members as Apostles. The Apostles, Homosexuality and Marxism. The Conversation Society, based at King College, King's College, began in 1820 as a small private club of Cambridge undergraduates founded by George Townlinson from St. John's College. Townlinson later became Bishop of Gibraltar. The all-male 12-member society gathered every Saturday night to discuss the philosophical issues of the day within the anti-authoritarian context of the liberal broad church movement that had found an uneasy home in the Anglican church. Among the earliest apostles were the young Victorian poet Alfred, later Lord Tennyson, 1809-1892, and his dearest friend, Arthur Henry Hallam, 1811-1833. Conspicuous by their absence were undergraduates who excelled in the scientific field, since by the 19th century, the two cultures of the sciences and the arts had decided to go their separate ways. And this is all my reading from the Right of sodomy today, there's no time for the catechism. I'm at 54, almost 55 minutes. So I'll conclude my podcast here. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.